0: machines aren't doing the job for us. We're still training the models. And you've got companies and vendors and software providers saying, we've got embedded ML, we've got embedded AI. And I'm like, well, you've got business rules and SQL scripts running behind the scenes. It's not
1: AI. We just overuse the word. We're speaking with Saul Rashidi, the chief analytics officer of Estee Lauder. Tell us briefly about your background.
0: My running joke is no one ever grows up and says, hey, I want to go into data and analytics and get juiced up about it. Here, I want to be a doctor, I want to be an astronaut, a president, but to be in data and analytics wasn't a thing. Went for management consulting, and my first gig in the industry was a chief data and cognitive officer for Royal Caribbean. And the scope of the work was really around the data ecosystem. We were producing and building the data ecosystem that was going to power all the digital products that the digital team was building. So we were essentially a service provider. But from there, I went to becoming the CDO for Sony Music. From there, a very short stint at Merck as their chief data and analytics officer, and the career has progressed from being the chief data officer to now the chief analytics officer with Estee Lauder.
1: What does a chief analytics officer actually do?
0: The end result is ultimately about insights. And we talk about insights, but a feeder into that is the analytics. So, in the data world, depending on the scope of the CDO role in the organization that they're at, it's around aggregation, consolidation, first party, second party, third party, data ecosystems, connecting the information, not just collecting the information, data quality, data fidelity. What I call sort of the defensive playbook, it's all around the back-end ecosystem that's going to support insights and analytics, but the offensive playbook is really around the analytics that you're going to derive from the data. It's really around the insights that you're going to generate from the analytics, and it's really around working with the business of, hey, we're picking up on these market trends, and if I use historical past performance data that we've leveraged with these market trends, here's how I think the business is going to operate in the future or portfolios that we should diversify. So the chief analytics officer is really focused on the offensive playbook because data is a means to the end, but the end is really around analytics and insights. So in this particular case, it's going to be an ecosystem of both data and analytics versus mostly just focused on data.
1: What are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve? You're you're looking at the full data lifecycle from the determining what to collect, to collecting it, aggregating it, and then doing something with it. What is it that you're trying to do with that data? Regardless of the title
0: and regardless of the company, the biggest objective is for the presidents who run the businesses and have a P&L to manage. and They need to either continue current growth or capture additional market share to accelerate their growth, or to maintain their current positioning within a very competitive environment, we are a support service to be able to support that P&L growth, maintenance and growth. So It's all around supporting the individuals who run the P&L. We're not collecting data just for the sake of collecting data. We're collecting data to do something with data. We're really around generating analytics and insights. How do we empower? How do we work with the business to say, these are your objectives? We can be a service provider to support you with elements, components, analytics, and insights to support your objectives.
1: Where are you getting the data? How are you deciding what kind of data to be that you should be collecting? Let's collect any and every data
0: element, data set that we can get our hands on, whether it's first party, second party, or third party. Or you can take the posture of let's be use case driven. I have a use case. I need the data to support it. I have a use case. I need the data to support it. To be honest with you, I've managed both. I don't think either is ideal. If you take a very use case by use case approach, you're always going to be limited to the data sets that support that use case. and I don't think that's going to give you the insights necessarily because the breadth, depth, and span of data sets you have by default are limited to the existing use cases that have come about. But just being a data hoarder also doesn't solve the problem. There has to be a rhyme or reason. So I think if you take a look at those two postures, I'm working on finding that balance in between of what are the fundamental data sets that we need? Consumer, product, and prioritizing those first and foremost then going to sort of the next data sets then the next data set so that we at a minimum have prioritized data sets that are just fundamental and foundational to the organization and our aperture of the data sets are comprehensive and give people an arena to be able to use that so i've gone from a let's go data hoarding to let's support it by use case by use case to now let's prioritize the data sets that we think are going to run our business in the future
1: and how do you advise business executives or business leaders to navigate these different approaches cuz cuz again as i talk with business leaders and and also data scientists it seems like this is a, a really hard challenge
0: in my experience they don't care <laughs> i don't think that's for them to decide i think it's for whoever the cdo is whoever the cio if you don't have a cdo the cio if you don't have a cdo maybe if there's a cao i think ultimately whoever has been empowered to get this organized, to enable and empower the business, the decision is on that individual, but with the right objectives, purpose, influence as to why these things are important and how it's going to support the business of the future. and Then you get everyone else aligned to the prioritization schema that you've established. But To be honest with you, the business doesn't want to get involved in those details. They're just like, I need an answer to my question, and I'm tired of waiting four months for a report to be spun up. Or I need an answer to my question. And anytime I ask my data team, it takes some weeks because they have to go on an Easter icon to be able to find all the data sets. They just kind of want that stuff
1: fixed. So they're not looking at the technology aspects. They are saying, you know, it's taking too long to get a report. Give me my answer.
0: Nothing is quick enough and nothing is comprehensive enough. And as soon as you do provide something that's quick, they want more. So the demand and supply, you're just always in a net negative game there. But yeah, they don't care about the decisions being made behind the scenes. All they want is better results in terms of time frame, cohesiveness, comprehensiveness, and your acumen in understanding their business so that when you do present something, you validated the numbers so that when they look at it, the first thing they don't spot is, well, this is wrong. Because if your numbers don't align with the way they're reporting their numbers, you completely lose credibility. And so you can't do this alone. If there's a business analyst or a data analyst or a finance counterpart supporting that business, no matter what you put together, you've got to make sure your data models, your logic, and your data sets align with the financial individuals who are providing the numbers to make sure there's integrity and fidelity in what you're presenting to the business executive. Otherwise, they'll dismiss it right off the bat.
1: Saul, you mentioned the real importance of having that understanding of the business and especially aligning closely with the financial folks how do you achieve that understanding? Because you can't be a domain expert across every part of the company. So how do you do that? It's a three-prong
0: approach. One, you build relationships and you find the people who are willing to just have another 30-minute meeting with you or have an hour meeting with you and tell you the way things are. And You go to them for coaching and counseling and guidance of like, I need to produce this, but I've got four different agendas to appease. I'm not sure which one to align to. And the last thing I need to do is contain the scope of this so I can deliver something in a few weeks or in a few months. You kind of need your inner circle, your advisory councils, and they've got to be individuals who've been with the company a really long time. And it's really hard in the first six months to identify who they are. But there are some that, as you're doing your one on ones when you join a company or join a new team, They're just more open to it and gravitate towards that and use them as your bench and your counsel. I would say that's the first prong. The second is when you have a use case or a business problem or a project or a program that you need to run for a business, use that opportunity because they've now pulled you in. You've been invited to the dinner table. You officially have an invitation. And I think the more you express interest in learning their business, the better off you'll be. Now, you've got to balance how many people to include in that meeting as you're learning the business. You can't bring your entire team who needs to learn the business, but that's the opportunity to really start unpacking how they think through things and also start establishing the maturity level of the business. That's going to give you an indication of how much you can be hands-off versus hands-on in the entire requirements, the discovery process, requirements gathering, solutioning, development, engineering, and all of the above. So, Build the relationships, use your councils, use different use cases or projects that you're being pulled into to really understand the business because they've now invited you to the dinner table and now is an opportunity. And the third is I would actually sit with their finance team. Every business team has a financial operation that they go to this say, tell me about my performance across the following categories, sectors, product portfolios. Those are the numbers that they eat, live and breathe. So attend the financial meetings. Um, sit with them and understand their models. Where are they pulling the data sets from? What are their sources of truth? And I think if you combine those three, you now can start producing deliverables or products or insights that align with the way they've been viewing their numbers historically or the data historically, and you've automatically built some, some trust.
1: It seems like you've got to have a really clear understanding, both uh, from a from a product or a service standpoint, what these folks are delivering, and at the same time be really uh, clear with the analytics, with the uh, financials. The financial yeah. folks you need. Sounds like you're doing both really strongly at the same time. One hundred
0: percent. I mean, the, the financial teams, the finance team, they're your very first at the onset data and analytics team it's all they do is spreadsheets and aggregations and models and forecasting it's where it all started so if the company is depending on a core group of individuals to serve each business partner with them because what they do matters now you may need to aggregate not only the financial numbers with consumer level data product level data whatever it may be but the root of it all is everyone wants to understand performance Growth opportunities and how certain product portfolios are performing, and where are areas of opportunity to capture um, and capitalize on? And it all starts with finance.
1: We have uh, a couple of questions from Twitter and Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener, and I always thank him because he asks such outstanding questions. So, Arsalan Khan says, How do you balance between what the data is telling you versus what your business executives believe to be true, (laughs) sometimes business executives veto the analytics and go with their guts.
0: You're never going to overcome that until you have one or two wins under your belt, and then they'll start listening to you. I'll share a story. At one of the companies, I was responsible for building a 360 view of a consumer because Consumer care was going to one portal. Customer service was going to another portal. The finance team was going to another portal. The marketing teams were going to another portal. The sales team was… So the consumer data was fragmented across about 11 different applications. And in total, there were 76 source systems or platforms that held consumer information. But we had decided that the ones that matter comes down to 21. So same as that prioritization schema, we're not going to hoard all the information. But what are the data sets that matter? And we determined of the 76, 21 matters. Now we could solve a convenience problem in that we could, yeah, build a single UI, consolidate these level applications into one and offset. But I think the intention was really around new insights. So we had built this 360 view of a consumer, single pane UI. It was sexy, cool, fun, great buzz. The business loved it because what had happened was is instead of them having to go on an Easter icon across multiple applications, it was a one-stop shop for them. But that wasn't really why we built it. We built it to generate new insights about the consumers that we were serving. But the business wasn't using it that way. Okay, no problem. Every Friday afternoon, I had sort of a a rule of like, all right, happy hour. We're just going to noodle over the things that we've built, opportunities. Let's think big. Let's get away from our laptops and computers, and let's just do a huddle. We decided that we were going to look at our own product and see if we could find new insights. And lo and behold, what we discovered was, is our loyalty members that were cherished dearly within the company that we would bend over backwards to appease, because there was a notion that we were making the most revenue out of them. We found out that our margins on them were single digit and sometimes negative. Because what had happened was, is when we finally combined the financial data with the customer service data with the platform on the on at the business level data. We realized that we had four call centers and the systems weren't integrated. And our highest loyalty members figured out that if they call and complain to Wichita and we comp them, they could call and complain to Tallahassee, we'd comp them again. They could call and complain to Tacoma, we'd comp them again. So when you looked at the overall net spend, because of all the comps, we weren't making the money that we thought we were. The margins were minimal, if not negative. So, I approached my boss. I said, I think we've got something. Um, we've been literally noodling over this for about a month and we've been racking our brain. So, he's like, All right, then bring it up in the next EC meeting. So, we were in the executive steering committee meeting and it was my turn to give a status. Here are the products. Here's the data ecosystem. Here's how we're doing. And the CEO asked, All right, any net new insights? I said, Well, we've got something, but we need to vet it out a little bit more. My boss looked at me and was like, It's okay. share. You guys have done your due diligence. And I kind of said, I said, there's a possibility that there's a consumer class that we think we're making the most money on. There's a potential that it's not double-digit margins, but single-digit to potentially negative margins. But let me do my homework and I'll come back. The CEO, and meeting ended, patted me on the back, that's why you're here. My boss said, great job in delivery, patted me on the back, that's why you're here. The brand presidents looked at me and said, you will never work for us again. Well, that's pretty strong. Well, Why? Because the business had been operating under a notion that this consumer class was extremely profitable. And here's this new individual new to the company who yes, knows the tech stacks and knows modern ways of doing analytics and blah blah blah, but I haven't been a part of the business. I haven't run a PL. I don't have no credibility with them just yet. And they completely dismissed it completely. What I ended up doing was just trying to say face it's like, I'm sorry, I apologize. We're probably wrong, and I will publicly announce that. What I ended up doing is is I brought their analysts into the picture, and I said, I need you to troubleshoot what we did wrong because I would like to announce that this was incorrect or bad. Next time, we're going to do some more due diligence. Well, turns out their analysts came in They said, actually, you guys aren't wrong. Shit. (laughs) Pardon my French. And they had a moment like that. Because based on experience, based on instincts, based on number of years of running a business that's been successful, they haven't had to view it in a different way. Just so the analytics was telling them something different, they're like, I'm a successful business. I know how to run my business. Don't tell me how to run my business, even though we were right. So anyway, from there, that's when I learned. It's not a batter of the analytics per se. It's about how involved you get the business in the analytics you're trying to generate and the new insights you're trying to present. Don't take credit for it. Let them take credit for it because only they can call their baby ugly. You can't call someone else's baby ugly. And that's part of another mistake that I learned is you've got to include the business from the very onset. You'll always have challenges with getting them engaged, staying engaged. They just want the answers. It can't work that way. You've always got to have one person that's on point that you can constantly reach out to and go, I need you to validate this. I need you to validate this. And in every status, you've got to be maniacal about saying so-and-so from the business validated this. And then when you present, you show the list of individuals you work from from the business that they validated it. And so that when you're generating analytics or presenting the new insights, there's credibility that their own team was involved in the journey. So now it's their story, not an outsider's team telling them their story.
1: I guess really what you're talking about is the tension between what is true based on the data versus what feels good. Based on our pre-existing biases, and let's not have a discussion now about politics and vaccines and and all of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an old adage, right? Feelings aren't facts, but in business, sometimes they are.
1: I can see the approach that you took. Um, it's very skillful in terms of bringing them into the, into the conversation because it's not just the data, it's the trust and the confidence that's it. in how we arrived at that data.
0: 100 percent.
1: And That seems to be a, a really fundamental issue here in terms of being successful do, doing the kinds of work that you do.
0: 100 percent. I think that's why sometimes data science teams struggle. Most of what's built becomes shelfware. So unless you're in a very specific industry, like the financial industry or insurance or whatever it may be, where the stuff that you're building legitimately goes into products, most data science teams are doing one-off use cases and they're building decks to share their results. But you share it. And then what ends up happening? They listen, they go, that's interesting. But I'm willing to put money on the table that says, okay, what are they doing with that now? And how are they acting different or making different business decisions? Most times not. It ends up in shelfware. And so for me, you're always going to have analysts or data scientists, just folks in the DNA team who they're okay with that. But for me, I always say that no matter what position I've taken, I always want to leave one lasting impression that without the existence of our group. That business would still be doing things the way they have, and they wouldn't have had a gain benefit or a business benefit from it. And so always leave a legacy behind. And so for me, when you bring the business apart up along with the journey, the stickiness factor kicks in and it sticks. Now in two years, people are going to forget who even did it, who created it, um, what net new insight. It'll just be like, well, how did we live without this information? Because it's so foundational like just fundamental to the business. It doesn't matter. You know that you had influence, you've changed the way the business is operating, and the stickiness factor only kicks in when they're along for the ride. The only caveat to that is it's going to take time because they're never available when you want them to be available.
1: So, we have a question from Twitter from Gus Beckdash who asks a, a really good question and he wants to know what kind of training folks can get to better. Understand how to use data, executives, leaders, and I'll broaden that to maybe you can tell us how to get started, and how to get started doing data, doing data and analytics in in this kind of way that you've been describing, and along the way, what do business leaders need to know?
0: We've raised the acumen. But No one takes an interest to the level that we take an interest. And, and You can't expect that. It's our business. It's not their business. They're running the P&L. That's their job. How do I maintain market share? How do I grow market share? How do I diversify my portfolio? That's their job, and that's where a majority of their capacity is focused. But if an organization is investing in this or they've invested in it, but it hasn't really kicked off the way they need it to, one thing that I have sold to the powers above me, um, so the, the, the C-suite above my C-suite is we should probably have an executive boot camp around data and analytics. I say two days is enough, but never back to back. And it should probably be four hours day one, three hours day two. it's non-negotiable, it's mandatory. And the way I make a business case for it is you're about to spend, millions of dollars in a practice that may not take flight because the pure dependency on this is based on the understanding of the executives. So for me, the ROI is is four hours of executive's time on one day, three or four hours on the second day. And we have a higher rate of success in terms of any of the things that we want to deploy and sponsorship. It's worth the time. I'll be honest, half the time I've been successful, half the time I haven't been. But the ones where I have been successful, I've worked with other partners because it's always important that you're not the one pitching the story. You may know the story. You may know the area. But um, I've partnered with McKinsey before. I've partnered with Deloitte before. I've, I've partnered with multiple partners in the past. Of We need to do an executive boot camp around data and analytics. What, do, what is the difference between data science, data engineering, data analysts, business analysts, modeling, aggregation? Like, just basic fundamentals because it's not all DNA. Who's doing what and what goes into producing something so that one they have an appreciation for it but two they understand how things are generated. And that not everything leads to a report, not everything leads to a dashboard. You can have interactive portals. It can be shelfware. There's different types of way of performing analytics. So it's just a boot camp. And that gives them just a base knowledge around data and analytics and it has um, better influence. So I have found that helps. i have also, to supplement that, I've always asked them, designate someone in your team that's going to be your point person for DNA. And it's got to be your number two or number three person. So when I go to a business, I'm like, who's your number two or number three? Can you give them the responsibility for data and analytics so they can work with them? Because if it's coming from that source, by default, the executive is going to listen. So you've also got to find the right allies in the business.
1: To what extent… Is our business leaders willing to accept this kind of training when, as you said earlier, many of them, I'm sure, simply want to come to you and say, I need this report. Can you make sure I get it faster? And I don't want to know anything more about it.
0: You're always going to get that mixed bag of nuts. And that's just the reality of our jobs. I always say there's just certain jobs that are very thankless. <laughs> um, You're just going to get comfortable with it. You're never going to change that paradigm. I've been trying to for many years.
1: We have a very interesting and important question from Twitter and this is from Dr. Alexander Backelman. You spoke earlier about organizational maturity and what are the key maturity dimensions to look at and what are the most critical aspects of organizational maturity for you?
0: I think there's a few dimensions that go into maturity level. Um, so, one, I look at the hard skills. Many of the businesses are whether they're structured by country, region, product line, brand, label, you've got to look at the structure as a whole and how many different dissections occurred, right? So, most of us operate in a very matrixed environment. But within those pods of teams and groups that you have to serve, I do look at the hard skills. Do they even have a designated DNA team, a data analyst, a business analyst? Like who's on point for this stuff? If they don't have one, that's a telltale sign that on the pendulum of one to five, you know, they're not there because there just isn't a focus and they haven't invested in it for a multitude of reasons. Or, if they do have individuals, I look at their hard skills. Can they actually write SQL queries? Or are they advanced enough to go into, do they have statisticians? Uh, can they write R scripts? Or have they hired data scientists? Can they write Python scripts? Then I look at the workbenches that they work at. And then if I, sometimes we tag people as data scientists who are really doing data analyst jobs, they're not leveraging cluster non-cluster functions or KNN or random forest. They're just writing basic SQL select statements and that's how they're doing their job. So I try and look at, do they even have a designated team? If they have a designated team, what's the function? I look at the hard skills because if they don't have any hard skills and they only have soft skills like champions or translators or business analysts, That's another indicator into their maturity level. But then, if I have the time, I look at all the reports um, or dashboards or portals that they have access to to see how they're viewing the information at hand. If it's continually around descriptive analytics, so I want to understand performance based on historical data, that's another indication for me. And I hate to say it, but another, the last, last one is, and this was probably going to anger a few folks. Anyone who says that we're doing AI as a broad brushstroke term, that's a clear indication for me as well, their maturity level. The notion of AI is a very big broad brushstroke notion. It's the kitchen sink of a multitude of practices. And most people who are seasoned or veteran will never say, I do AI or we are doing AI. They will legitimately talk about their models, their techniques, natural language processing to extract sentiments, and we created these dictionaries and reference. They'll never say, I'm doing AI. So if I combine the assessment of whether they have a team, hard skills, soft skills, their use of the term AI, and how much of their budget is allocated towards this investment, that gives me a good indication of where they are on the
1: maturity curve. And How important is this to you, This mature, this level of maturity in the organization?
0: For me, fundamentally, because we can't be everywhere and we can't be everything to everyone, it helps knowing which teams need sort of a um, one stop shop approach towards analytics versus those that can be self service based or can quite frankly be autonomous and on their own, but they tap into you for best practices or for ideas or there's opportunities to partner things or we may be able to do things, some things faster, whatever it may be. So, this actually helps me with capacity planning. It also helps me understand which teams to partner with and which ones not to partner with because if on a maturity scale, there's tremendous interest because they're being great corporate citizens, but there's no investment, there's no talent, and they're not giving time. It's hard to invest in a team like that because you don't know if it's lip service. You don't know if they're too small for the organization. You probably shouldn't prioritize there. But if there's a team that's not necessarily producing the most, however… They've made the investments. They have a team in place. They just need to accelerate what they're doing. Well, that's a team you can really support, and you want to be helping them in their journey to growth. So it helps me with capacity planning because we can't be everywhere at the same time.
1: And why this point about AI? The point that you know yeah. if they're using AI as a buzzword, that sends a strong negative signal for you.
0: When I left management consulting, went into industry, my last gig in management consulting was launching Watson. And I really learned about that space and what it means to truly productionalize AI at scale and how immature we really are. Um, machines aren't doing the job for us. We're still training the models. And you've got companies and vendors and software providers saying, we've got embedded ML, we've got embedded AI. And I'm like, well, you've got business rules and SQL scripts running behind the scenes. It's not AI. We just overuse the word. And then I always ask, are we talking about augmented intelligence, automated intelligence? Because nothing's artificial. We're still fingers to keyboard and training those models. There, there's nothing artificial. Um, it's not a silver bullet. You don't activate something and it gives you an answer. That world doesn't exist. And so I think the word AI, one, there's a lot of hype, just like IoT back in the day, digital transformation. It just They're just broad brushstroke terms. Two, I think it gets really dangerous because people view it as a silver bullet and it's going to solve all the problems and it doesn't. We're still fingers to keyboard. It's still extremely and heavily involved. And three, I just don't believe there's anything artificial yet. It's it's coming. I don't think we're there yet, but it's a personal point
1: of view, so please take it with a grain of salt. So we have another question from Twitter and again this is from Arsalan Khan who says Data and analytics teams are trying to change the status quo, status quo. So are many other departments, IT, operations. And How can we ensure that these different departments do not step uh, overstep on each other's goals and work in conflict as opposed to working towards the same goal?
0: I don't think that's possible yet. I always say, in, in a position like mine, you need a backbone and not a wishbone there's going to be conflict because what you've done is you've now take a classic organizational structure. We've got business and you've got it. The two have always remained separate, but the business of data and analytics is it's a multidisciplinary field that fuses business and technology together. And so we are that Venn diagram in between the two circles. So we naturally, and this is, you know, this is the reality of what we do. We're never a part of the business because we're not running the p And so we're kind of like we're we're at the dinner, to the side dinner table during Thanksgiving when the real dinner table has outgrown its seats. And so they're just kind of tacked on something. So you're never really a part of the business, but you're serving the business. But you're never really a part of IT, but you have to partner with IT to unlock and enable because a lot of what we do has a technology dependence. But You've got this group of individuals who have to learn the business to generate the analytics and insights, but they have to have a technical acumen because everything we do is around data engineering and data modeling. It's always going to be slightly awkward unless this DNA team has complete technical ownership and sits within the business or has complete technical and business ownership and sits within the IT team. I've had This is my fourth post now, and I've never been in IT. I've always been within the business, and that Venn diagram just exists. And it's uncomfortable for the first six to nine months because you're trying to figure out roles and responsibilities because data and analytics fundamentally is owned by everyone and no one. So you're crossing over into everyone's swim lane. And your job is not to solve world hunger or world, it's just not to boil the ocean. You've got to pick and choose what the opportunities and gaps are that either are claimed but there just hasn't been the investment. And so they need subject matter experts to run it or are gaps and opportunities that you can claim and saying the symptoms we're feeling are a result of these root causes. This is what we're going to fix as a team. And here's how we're going to start. Then you can play like, Hey, let's talk about roles, responsibilities, races, operating models. And those conversations are never fun, but it's like I said, we choose, we did not choose this field. It chose us. And so you just got to ride
1: the wave. What I find fascinating is how this highly technical field, success in this highly technical field, is coming down to basically these human and political issues.
0: Always. We are the team that crosses over into swim lanes that sometimes we're welcomed in and sometimes we're not welcomed in.
1: We have another comment from Twitter. and This is, again, from Dr. Alexander Backelman, who who I find to be amazing. Um, and he says that for him, culture is the key dimension. We were talking earlier about uh, metrics and organizational maturity. And he says culture is the key dimension for him. If data driven decisioning and data affinity are not part of the culture, there will be no pull to use data and to develop data use cases.
0: I would agree with that. The only facet or caveat I would add is if you're a new company, it will be naturally a data-driven culture because you're just hungry for information and facts, and you're making business decisions based off of that. But if you're a company that's been around 25, 50, 75, 100-plus years, you will always have executives that have been there 20 years, 30 years, have retired from that company. They're not changing the culture is codified and it is set and you can bring in new leaders to infuse a new way of working infuse uh, a new operating model infuse a data first mindset infuse being data driven not just data rich but unless there's critical mass you're still you're still always going to be fighting the big machine of the culture that existed before you came and that's the reality of it and I butt my head up against the wall because I'm a change agent. I'm a disruptor. I like to build. I'm brought into these positions to start helping us pivot. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Because depending on how deep and thick that culture is codified with business leaders who are very respectable and have taken the company to someplace and grown it to where it is, and if they are tenured, you're not going to change that. Not unless you're willing to be there for 20 to 30 years and you've got new leaders who are also willing to be there 20 30 years and we fundamentally talk different act different, think different and the company has no choice but to pivot because you have enough new leaders infused into the working stream to, to drive that change in mentality
1: what final thoughts or advice do you have for business leaders that are listening to this who say yeah I want to I want to drive change using data what should they do?
0: The easy one is just embrace your DNA team more, loop them in. It could be weekly status meetings. It could be quarterly reviews. It could be when you're reviewing major strategic initiatives that you have to unlock um, um, or activate. Bring a member of your DNA team into the fold because you'd be amazed there are a lot of us who are passionate and care about what we do. Cause again, you don't choose this field. It chooses you, but once you're in it, it means you really are dedicated to it. Bring them into the fold, treat them like one of you. Um, and that's, what's going to help your story. Don't, don't, they're not a tangential Thanksgiving sidebar dinner table that, you know, like the children, the kids table, right? Fold them in early, let them provide a perspective. It doesn't mean you have to agree But that will really make a statement for your organization, to your leaders, to their leaders, Um, and you never know what golden nugget you're going to discover that you didn't know before.
1: Okay. Lots of words of wisdom. Saul Rashidi, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Of course. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And thank you for watching. We've been speaking with Saul Rashidi. She is the Chief Analytics Officer at Estee Lauder. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our great newsletter and let you know about upcoming shows and tell a friend. Thanks so much, everybody, and especially to the folks who contributed and asked such great questions. We will see you again next time, and uh, have a great day. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye, everybody.